Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Romans 1 through 6. This is the granddaddy of them all as far as the letters of Paul are concerned. And you'll notice it comes first in its order in the Bible, not chronologically. It's simply first because, as Taylor mentioned in a previous episode, they, they put the 14 epistles that they attribute to Paul in their uh, order based on length. And Romans is the biggest one of all. And it also has become the most widely quoted among all of the books of the Bible uh, by the Protestant uh, Reformation movement and all of the, the religions and churches that have fallen under the umbrella of that Protestant Reformation. It, it's powerful here that we, we think about letter writing in the ancient world because this is a letter that Paul wrote to Roman Christian saints. And there's a lot of letter writing we know about in the ancient world, but most letters were quite short. A really long letter might be about a thousand words, and this one is much, much longer than that. And as we read, we'll see that not only is it very theologically rich and deep, but there's also a lot of complexity packed in. And sometimes as we engage with Paul, we might sometimes feel a bit lost because Paul is trying to accomplish a variety of things, but uses several approaches to do it that sometimes we don't always see what's going on. So our hope today is that when you jump into Paul with us, you will feel his burning love and testimony for what Jesus has done for all of us to welcome us back into the presence of God. Now, if you've ever been in a conversation about doctrine with somebody and, and wondered how, how does faith interact appropriately with works, and what role does grace play in that, chances are pretty good that somewhere in that conversation, uh, a verse or a chapter from Romans entered in. It's important to remember here that Paul has never been to Rome, but he knows many of the people these, to whom he's writing in this letter because they've gone back to Rome. Uh, keep in mind, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews and Christians by default from Rome, and they've been gone for, what, four or five years? Now Nero is in charge, and many of them have gone back. So Paul has, has interacted with these people, and it's important to note that the, the main audience of this letter is Jewish Christians. So we have Gentile Christians who would probably be trying to figure out and sift through some of the potential baggage they brought into Christianity from their pagan background, from that Greco-Roman world, and Paul's going to deal with that in a different way. But then you have Jewish Christians who have brought their perspectives into this Christian fold, and Paul is trying to disentangle those traditions that are attached to the law of Moses. So keep in mind, every time that we're going to see in this book the word law or works of the law, he's not talking about 
the law of consecration or the law of the gospel or the law of tithing or the law of fill in the blank. He's talking about the works of the law that that group in his audience would associate with that word, which is the law of Moses. And so, it's important to keep that in in mind, otherwise we could end up reading this whole letter and assume that Paul is saying, yeah, it really, there's nothing that, that is of value in performing any kinds of works or rites or ordinances within the law of the gospel or the law of consecration. Martin Luther and many of those early reformers found a lot of their motivation to call into question some of the practices of of their upbringing and of their religious practices and, and religious fervor because of what's in the book of Romans. Keep in mind, uh, in the late 1400s, early 1500s, there is a lot happening surrounding the Catholic Church in Europe at the time, and reformers like Martin Luther, they're, they're starting to see things and they're saying, hmm, is this right? But the problem is, is up to this point, up into the late 1400s, early 1500s, you would go to church, you would listen to some priest read the Bible passages to you in Latin, which nobody understood, and then that priest would interpret for you what he had read, and you're at the mercy of whatever his interpretation is. You have no idea what he just read. And so, Martin and others, they start learning Greek and Hebrew and reading the Bible in, its, in the languages that it had been written down in originally, and they start discovering some things and they start asking questions, which leads ultimately to him posting the 95 Theses on the, the door, which kind of is that major beginning point for that Protestant Reformation. And let's dive in to, to chapter 1 and look at some of the issues here that would have fueled that Reformation fire in Martin Luther and others. So, it starts in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle. You'll notice the to be is italicized, and in your King James Version of the Bible, any words that are italicized are additions where the King James translators are saying, you know, this isn't here in the, in the source text in the Greek when we're talking about New Testament, but it doesn't flow smoothly in English, so we're going to add these words to make it sound more fluid in English. So, the, the original would have been, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So, Paul has received that apostolic calling at this point. And this is important because <clears throat> the people who are going to receive this letter, some of the people will know Paul, others will not, and so it's important to understand who it is that's providing this letter and his authority. So, you'll notice from verse 1, he was set apart as an apostle unto the gospel of God, so we're talking about the Father who had promised afore by the prophets in his holy scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So, we get his unique parentage, this side coming from Mary, who is a descendant down through David, and Joseph who adopts Jesus, who is a direct descendant down from David. 
and verse 4, and declared to be, and notice the to be is italicized, so it's just declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead, inheriting from Mary the ability to die and suffer, inheriting from his Father the ability to have power over death. And then it continues on, verse uh, 5, if you look at the Joseph Smith translation, it says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship through obedience and faith in his name. Notice right out of the gate, Paul is talking about obedience to something and faith in his name to preach the gospel among all nations among whom ye also are called of Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called, once again, the to be is italicized, he's calling them saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So his, his long introduction sets up this beautiful context of Paul the Apostle being a witness for the name of Christ and for God to these people who are now called saints from this very early age. That's what they're referring to them as. We could just briefly compare this to other introductions you might be familiar with. Have you ever sent a letter or an email or even a text to somebody? How long was your personal introduction about yourself? It just may have been hello or dear to somebody, and you just jump right into the message. Or if you're texting, we just kind of jump right into the message. Here in the ancient world, particularly when Paul is sending a message to a group of people who mostly have not personally met him, some have, he needs to establish his identity, their identity, and how they are connected to God in this work. And so that's why we need this longer introduction. So verse 13 tells us, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. He's saying, look, I, I wanted to come to you, but I haven't been able to do that yet. Uh, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, for some Reformation context here, Martin Luther raised in, in Germany under a pretty harsh father, but that wasn't unique to him. Most fathers at that time were pretty exacting, especially of their sons, and it led to probably a, a pretty serious uh, bout of scrupulosity for Martin Luther, where it's that feeling of, I'm never going to be good enough, and God's displeased with me, and I, I've got to do better, and so increasingly trying to ramp up his level of obedience and always feeling like he falls short. So he ends up going against his father's demands for him to go into law, and instead he goes into the church as, and, and devotes himself fully as a priest. In, in the church at the time. He becomes a monk, an Augustinian monk, or somebody who follows a lot of the teachings of an early Christian scholar named Augustine or Augustine who lived in, around the 400s and who made a tremendous impact on the theology of early Christianity. So think about this. 
from the context of a guy who has spent his life feeling unworthy and saying, I'm never going to be able to please God, and he reads verse 16 now in a language that he can understand, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is coming from, from a person who has spent most of his life feeling ashamed, and he's reading about Paul not being ashamed because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So, it starts to reform, reshape his thinking of, wait a minute, have, have, I been, have I been trying to please God the wrong way? Look at verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And if you look at the Joseph Smith translation, it says, through faith on his name, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's this belief and this, this faith narrative that starts to come into his, into his uh, mind to say, huh, I have been trying so hard to work my way into God's good graces that maybe Paul's got something to teach me. Maybe I've missed the boat here. This is really important. These words, belief and faith, things that we've talked about extensively through the Old Testament year all are about the covenantal connection we have with God. And those words were not clearly understood in their covenantal context in the time of Augustine or in the time of Luther. And so, on the face of it, when you see the word belief and faith, you might say, oh, I should be believing, I should have faith, which are absolutely true, but may miss the larger nurturing covenantal context those words mean. So, Paul, when he's sharing this phrase, the just shall live by faith, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, if you look at this verse, you'll notice a small difference from what Paul actually quoted. We're not exactly sure. Did Paul have access to a variant copy of what Habakkuk wrote, or did Paul change the words of Habakkuk for his own purposes? We're not exactly sure. But whatever the case may be, if we go back to the original of what Habakkuk was trying to communicate, he says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Well, who's the his we're talking about? It's God. It's God's faithfulness. Through the Old Testament year, we tried to make that case that God has and always will be faithful to his covenantal obligations and to his people in the covenantal context. And ultimately, the only way to be saved is through God's faithfulness. If God, which he can't do, but just for the sake of conversation, if God stopped being faithful to his covenant to us, we could not be saved. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that faithfulness. And so, it is true. Martin Luther was right to say, it is by faith that we are saved. But if we map this out, Whose faith are we talking about? A plain reading of Romans would make us focus on, well, I have to have faith, which is true. And we will talk about why it's important that we also are faithful to God, that we are in a trustworthy, long-term relationship with God. But ultimately, what Paul was trying to get at 
And if we could go back to the original Habakkuk, it's ultimately God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his loyalty in the covenant is what provides a salvation. And if we choose to accept it, and that's by accepting Jesus, be baptized, we see the sacrament every week, that is showing that I accept the free gift that God has offered. And this is why there's been, unfortunately, confusion for hundreds of years. It's about whose faith are we really talking about? And fundamentally, it's God's. God was faithful first, and because of that, we too need to be faithful. What a beautiful principle that we're trying to become more like God. Well, one of those attributes of God is his perfect faith, his perfect faithfulness. It's a beautiful reminder. Now, the other way to look at this is if you break down this concept of the just, to be just is to be considered righteous. It's to be considered innocent, not guilty, not punishable. And you'll notice in a context of our gospel, there are two ways to be considered innocent, not punishable. One is perfectly keep the law. Don't ever break the law. Well, you're going to find out in the rest of this epistle how impossible that is for every single one of us. So the only other way to be considered just is to fully rely on one who is perfect and who is willing to share his perfection with us because he has such an abundance of it. Well, that's what we've set up in this epistle to the Romans, is Paul doing everything he can to get them to rely on Christ, to believe in him, to come unto him, to devote their lives to him, to enter into a covenantal connection with him, and draw upon his faithfulness, his perfections, his attributes, and his grace, ultimately, which is going to come up again and again in this uh, discussion. So, continue on to verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And the footnote, Joseph Smith translation says, who love not the truth, but remain in unrighteousness. That is a powerful correction. Um, and then he goes on to describe in this next column, this concept of things which are visible and things which are invisible, things which are created that you can see with your eyes, you can go touch them. So, creations, and creatures versus the Creator. And then look at verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's this this is a portion of his letter addressed probably to some of the, the Gentile Christians who've come in, and they're still having a hard time maybe letting go of some of that belief that, hey, we've crafted this beautiful idol and we're going to sacrifice and we're going to, to make obeisance to this god or goddess that we have crafted. 
and we're totally forgetting about the creator because we're looking at what we and others have created and we've totally missed the point. To, to build on this, Tyler, we should reiterate that one of the core purposes of this epistle is to create unity among this diverse group of people living in Rome who are all trying to be aligned to Jesus. So it's unity among humans who are then unified with God. So again, this is about covenantal relationship. And so you will see that Paul is calling out with a variety of examples that would have been clear to the people in his day, perhaps slightly confusing for us at times, about what people have done to either be disunified from other saints or to be disunified from God. And this is an example of people being disunified from God because they are worshiping false gods. And then in verse uh, 29 through 32, he finishes off chapter 1 with this long list of things that, that people in that society are, are wrestling with, they're surrounded with. I, you know, I wonder, I wonder what value there is in us in the 21st century reading this letter. Uh, I wonder how much comparison there could be to the, the context of these saints living in Rome, surrounded by idol worship, surrounded by people who are focused on the wrong things, not on God, and others focused too much on the works that they are performing, the works of the law, assuming that they can more perfectly keep the law and thus save themselves. And you've got the, these two opposite sides clashing in this now Christian congregation, and he's writing a letter to them. I wonder how much value there is in us reading this letter. Can we see similar elements surrounding us today? If you read verse 29, 30, 31, these types of things that they're struggling with, unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malig uh, malignity, whisperers, and it just goes on and on down to verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. It's that idea of they're not just doing these things, but they're glorying in and celebrating and encouraging others to do them. Things maybe haven't changed so much in the, the uh, last 2,000 years since this was written. It can be a little discouraging, but yes, also hope that we have these words preserved over all these years that remind us of what we can do to be connected to other people, unified in covenantal relationship, so we can be better unified with God. We now see good examples of what we should avoid and what we should be doing. So he opens up chapter 2 with this beautiful principle of the gospel about righteous judgment and unrighteous judgment being the opposite. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doeth the same things. How many times have you been in a conversation where somebody is judging somebody or, or the church or some other organization, and it's a bit ironic because the very things they're judging in this other entity, whether it's a person or an organization, it's almost as if they can't see it. They're blinded by the fact that the very things they're condemning, they're 
portraying themselves. You've all seen the analogy of when you point a finger of judgment at somebody, be careful because there are three fingers pointing back at you. So let's turn the page over now and look at verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Are you noticing? Because you aren't perfectly able to keep the law, you have to rely on he who is, and that requires faith and belief in him, but it also requires repentance, changing how you think, changing how you look at uh, righteousness and justice and mercy and relying on the Savior to extend that, uh, that grace to us. Now we get down into the depths of this, this part of his discussion. Verse 6, God will render to every man according to his deeds. You'll notice Paul is not anti-works as he is sometimes portrayed. Sometimes people will quote from the epistle to the Romans and they'll only quote small passages, we call that proof texting, where you take one verse here and a verse there to prove your point. Out of context. Out of context. You'll notice if you read all of Romans, Paul talks a lot about faith, grace, and ergon in Greek, works, these things that you're doing. So you're going to be judged according to your deeds, verse 7, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. These are those good works, um, but you'll notice they're not good works to save me. They're good works fueled by the Savior's grace to more fully bind me to him, connect me to him, and allow me to receive of the abundance of his perfection and of his uh, spirit that he offers to us. Uh, down to verse 8. So we have the good works in verse 6 and 7. Now we have the contrast, evil works in 8 and 9. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. So it's that, that beautiful option that's given to us through our agency to choose what kinds of works we're going to perform, whether they're works of righteousness, which connect us with Christ, or whether they're works of evil, which disconnect us with the Lord. And when we think about this word faith, you might think of the word faithfulness. What are you faithful to? And if you do evil deeds, you are faithful to evil things. And if you are doing righteous deeds, you are being faithful to righteous things. Now, the reality is all of us do a little bit of both, but the invitation is that over time as we practice the righteous de deeds, God will continue to absolve us of those sins, of those fallen nature challenges that we have struggled with, where we can be upgraded and we can learn to be just like him as we fully rely on the perfect one. So look at verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law, so the laws of God are given, but there are people who didn't even know about them. And so he's saying if you're sinning in ignorance, he says, 
they shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. You're, you're accountable to the law when you're, when you're in the law. We might remind ourselves that in the Old Testament world, the word law or Torah literally meant covenantal instructions. Paul understood this, his audience got this, and so they didn't have the need to just step back and say, oh, let's remind everybody about the covenantal connection. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about works, is that there is effort required of being covenantally connected to God and to your neighbor as he asks. Love God, love your neighbor. Beautiful. Now look at the justification in verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Again, Paul is not anti-works. He's saying the doers of the law are the ones that are going to be justified, but it's not this level of the doers of the law, it's connecting to the laws, these covenantal instructions that the Savior gives us. We do those, we are obedient to those, and we shall be justified. Let's jump down to verse 21. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? It's this idea of when you're teaching or when you're leading or when you're parenting, it's a big difference between what you say versus what you do, and the Savior Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of one who didn't just teach the ideal, he lived, he was the ideal, he embodied the ideal so that you could look at his deeds and listen to his words, and they lined up perfectly one-to-one, -one, and that's exactly what you should be doing. So then he gets into this topic of circumcision. For the Jewish people, that was a mark that they were part of God's people. And you had this group called the Judaizers, who were a member of the Christian group, but they believed that to be a good Christian, you had to be a good Jew as well. And Paul's saying, requiring people to be circumcised when you guys aren't even keeping all the other laws that really lead to covenantal faithfulness and happiness, that's just silly. So you'll see the rest of the verses in this chapter are about that topic. Don't require things of people, especially if you yourself are not willing to live the higher level of God's commands. So then in chapter 3, which by the way is probably, if you had to pick one chapter that is the seedbed for the Reformation, I think chapter 3 would have to be on your short list of, of highest possibilities for this. Um, he starts in verse 1 with asking a question, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? He's saying, look, do you have some preeminence because you're a Jewish Christian over the Gentile Christians? Or are you somehow a better saint than the Gentiles? And he goes on to say, uh, asking some more questions, but his answer is in verse 4, God forbid. Now, you're going to see the, that two-word phrase repeatedly in Paul's writings, God forbid. The essence of that is, is may it not be. Yeah, it's a rhetorical device to gather attention. It's interesting if you look at verse 3, it says, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Again, we think surface, at the surface level, we understand the word belief, unbelief, and faith. Partly what Paul is getting at is if I choose to be unbelieving or unfaithful in covenant with God, my lack of faithfulness to God does not destroy his faithfulness 
to me and everybody else. And so even though Paul is saying, yes, the Jews did get these special privileges by receiving these covenantal instructions, but just because they didn't always live up to them doesn't mean that God himself failed to stay covenantally faithful. Jesus is the key example to show that God is eternally covenantly faithful to us. And that's what Paul is trying to argue here is we need to be more like God, Jesus. We have to rely on his faithfulness and in the process we become more faithful and more trusting and more loyal to God and loving of our neighbors as ourselves. Such a powerful concept and it's going to keep coming up again and again. So now with that background, let's jump down to verse 9. Again, this idea of asking questions, this, this rhetorical uh, technique, and then setting up that tension and then giving the obvious answer. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Now pause for a minute there and consider this verse and subsequent verses that we're going to read through the lenses of people like Martin Luther who in those early times are struggling with this, this intense feeling of, of spiritual perfectionism that they're never going to, to please God, and now he's reading there is that we are all under sin, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That comes from Psalm 14, verse 1. This idea, there is none righteous, no, not one, that, that is music to the ears of somebody like Martin Luther as he keeps going. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. What percentage is that? Uh, not very high. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Did we get his point? He's, he's said this and said this and said this from so many angles that it's, it's this idea that Paul has taken this one completely off the table, so stop trying to be just by perfectly keeping the law. You're not going to do it. There is not one who is able to do this because all have gone out of the way, which means we are all desperately in need of a Savior, somebody who is both willing and able to share of his abundant perfection and grace with us, which leads us into the rest of chapter 3 now. And just to make that point very clear, that there is no, not one that doeth good, he then takes you through verse 13, 14, all the way down to 18, listing all of the things that we're doing that cause us to fall short of perfection. Now look at verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be guilty before God. He's setting up this, this idea that you can't just go and do whatever you want to do and quote-unquote sin in ignorance and say, well, I didn't know that this was something I wasn't supposed to do. He's saying you can't hide behind that barrel anymore. You can't do this in ignorance. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, 
there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So it's back to this point. None of, only Jesus could pull this off. And you got to remember, Paul is trying to write unmistakably. And have you ever, in order to create emphasis, expressed things in such stark terms that people would not misunderstand? But in that situation, sometimes we miss the nuances. That it is true, none of us can perfect ourselves. But ultimately, if we see now our utter need for Jesus, we can have his perfection to make us perfect, which we hear in the Book of Mormon, that as we accept Jesus Christ, we receive of the fullness of all that he has to offer. So, to, to give a triangulation of this doctrine here in verse 20, let's look at Father Lehi in 2 Nephi 2, speaking to his son Jacob. Listen to these words, men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto men, and by the law no flesh is justified, or by the law men are cut off. Think about that. You don't usually get pulled over by the police to be given gift certificates for obeying the law. Usually policemen pull you over because you broke the law and you now need to be corrected or punished with justice. The law does not justify anybody. The law just sets up a standard that you and I can't perfectly keep, so we're going to break it. So the law is not our savior. Ironically, it's the lawgiver who is our savior, and not just the lawgiver, but he also becomes the perfect law keeper who then says, I will pay all those tickets for you. I will meet the ends of the law for you if you'll just do a few things. I'll pay a price for you that you can't pay for yourself if you'll just come unto me and pay a price that I'm asking of you. I want a broken heart. I want a contrite spirit. I want you to trust me. I want you to repent. I want you to turn to me. I want you to change how you're thinking and seeing things and trust me and make a covenant connection with me through baptism. I'll promise you the gift of the Holy Ghost and I'll walk with you on that covenant path to the very end. And this is how we get the word unprofitable servant. So if Jesus has paid the infinite price for you, the price that we give to him in return is small, which means Jesus did not get a return on his money. We can't give back to him infinite plus 1%. So technically we are unprofitable. And guess what? He doesn't care. He wants us to be those unprofitable servants that give something back in return. Now it's important when we're talking about this grace and faith, to remember that in its original context, it meant mutual obligation in a covenantal relationship. And often you would have somebody who had more power, prestige, or resources who is doing good deeds for those who may not be able to help themselves with the hope that the person who receives will do something advantageous or of benefit for the relationship. And this is what God wants. He gives us grace, we return a little bit of grace unprofitably, and we proceed from grace to grace as we grow in the love of God. This is what Paul's trying to get at 
And unfortunately, 2,000 years, we have kind of missed some of the context of this mutuality of this covenant relationship. If we can just simplify the gospel, God is your Father, Jesus Christ is your Savior, and they want to be in a loving relationship with you. And for as much as we love Paul and all the scriptures, sometimes we get so distracted that we miss that it's simply about how do we stay in covenantal commitment to God and invite other people in through our relationships to also be covenantally committed to God. And thank heaven that they don't require us to repay them or to try to pay back what they've invested into us. Thank heaven that they're okay with unprofitable servants like me and like you. Uh, can you picture a parent holding a brand newborn baby and looking at that little newborn and thinking to themselves, hmm, I wonder what we're going to get out of this one, honey. It's ridiculous. This little baby cost a lot of pain and discomfort for its mother. It's going to cost that couple a lot of money just to get the baby here, and it's not about seeking repayment from that child because there's something else that has happened with birth, with a new life. It's this feeling of the heart wrapping around that little soul and saying, I am going to do everything I can to give you what you need in order to, to grow and progress and become all that you have the capacity to become with no thought of what can I get from you in return. And if mere mortals can understand that concept, oh, how much more is that in play when we're talking about heavenly parents and a divine Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not trying to get us to repay him. He's trying to get us, he's given us infinite amounts, and as Taylor is saying, he just wants a little bit of that reciprocal grace of our trust in him, our covenantal loyalty to him to say, yeah, I'd rather do this or that or the other, but instead I'm going to focus my life on thee, and I'm going to, to turn my heart, my broken heart, and my contrite spirit over to thee to walk this path of discipleship with thee. It's a pretty small return on the investment that Christ has, has put in us. So just a few nights ago, I had one of these moments. Uh, my wife and I are parents of two teenagers, and they understand the expectations of our family. I guess we have laws, and it's not like we declare them all the time, but my wife and I had an event out of the house a few evenings ago, and when we got back, it was a little bit late at night, the kids had cleaned up all of dinner, the kitchen was super nice, and had put themselves to bed. And I'm like, wow, I don't think I told them explicitly, you need to do all these things. They kind of knew the expectations. And it's interesting, my wife and I have spent a lot of time and effort over the years raising the kids, putting resources in, and this little act they did was so heartwarming to us. Now, did that one act make up for the 15 years we've been working with these kids? Have they been profitable servants because of that one act of love and kindness and loyalty? No, but it helped to further cement the bonds of love that we share as a family that are growing. And I kind of see God in the same way. He has an infinite amount of love to give us and he doesn't lose anything. It doesn't make him feel bad to give it away. He just feels great joy when we show a small bit in return that we have received from him and we're willing to share that love with others by being loyal to him. 
I wonder if we could apply that and more often in our prayers, instead of telling Heavenly Father what we want Him to do for us, I wonder if a small way to return just a small portion of His grace would be to ask Him in prayer, Heavenly Father, what would Thou have me do for Thee today? Or how could I be an instrument in Thy hands to serve those around me today? Um, small, small way that we could perhaps reflect some of the Lord's goodness and grace. Now in verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God, notice whose righteousness it is? <laughs> it's not yours, it's not mine. It's God's righteousness that gets revealed. Notice he says, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Now that word without in verse 21 is apart from, without intervention of. You'll notice in your footnote there, it's, it's apart from the law that the righteousness of God is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is a standard nobody has met except for Jesus Christ and he alone was able to perfectly do this. And now you get into a deeper level of this discussion in verse 24, um, and we're going to read the Joseph Smith translation version. Therefore, being justified only by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's Joseph Smith's addition here, that we're justified only. Are you noticing this? Justified only by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are not justified when we get up to the pearly gates, I promise we're not going to bring a briefcase and set that briefcase on the, the little desk there and then pull out, okay, here's my baptismal certificate, here's my mission call, here's my a, a stack of the temple recommends I had through the year, here's, here's a list of all the callings I had, here's my, here are all of my tithing and donation receipts, here are all of the good deeds that I did, there. I deserve heaven. Open the door. Let me in. Look what I did. Look how justified I am. Brothers and sisters, if we did that, if we laid out on the table all of the good things that we did, it's a guarantee somebody else could come up behind us and lay out on another portion of the table all of the times that we fell short, all of the times that we didn't do what we knew we should have done. And there would be probably more evidence that we don't deserve heaven. In fact, years ago, we had a, an in-service in, in my department at work where Stephen Robinson, who wrote the book Believing Christ, he, he came and gave a last lecture. And in his lecture, he walked us through a fascinating uh, activity that I'll never forget. He said, let's, let's turn to the top wheel guide and look up the word earn. What do I need to do to earn celestial glory? What do I need to do to earn salvation? So everybody's dutifully looking in their topical guide, and we can't find the word earn. And so Stephen Robinson says, well, maybe that's not a good scriptural word. Let's look up the word deserve. So we turned and started looking for deserve, 
And guess what? Deserve isn't in the topical guide. It's not a scriptural word. There, there's not a list of things we need to do to deserve heaven. And so then he said, oh, let's try the word merit because that's a scriptural word that we will find. And many in the room were thinking, I'm not going to play this dumb game anymore. He's just, he's tricking us. And he said, no, go, you're going to find this one. And so listen to this. He said, let's just read a couple of these and see what we need to do to merit eternal life. Listen to this in the topical guide. So here we go. The first entry under merit, 2 Nephi 2 verse 8. No flesh can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits of the Holy Messiah. Wait a minute. The question you were asking is, what do I need to do to merit eternal life? And here it says, no flesh can dwell except to be through the merits of the Holy Messiah. Okay, well, maybe the second one will help us. Alma 22, verse 14. What do I need to do to merit eternal life? Man could not merit anything of himself. Huh, this isn't going so well for us. Uh, how about Alma 24.10, the next one. Taken away the guilt from our hearts through the merits of his Son. And the last entry, Moroni 6, verse 4, also connected with Doctrine and Covenants, section 3, verse 20. Relying alone upon the merits of Christ. And Brother Robinson's point that day was, we really don't merit anything of ourselves. We won't come to the pearly gates and lay out a list of all of the amazing things we've done. If we get into heaven, it's because we've relied wholly upon the merits of he who is mighty to save, even the holy Messiah. So, that, that Joseph Smith translation, 24a, you have to mark that one because it is so significant because of that word, only. And also note that the word freely does not show up in the original language. The King James translators were trying to convey the essence of this really deep, powerful word that comes up as justification or even grace. And the idea here is that the grace that we receive is, in an essence, freely offered. We didn't merit it. We didn't deserve it. For example, every child who's born in the world, they don't receive all the gifts from their parents because the child has done anything to merit that. So even though the gift is freely given from a parent to a child, the hope is the child will be bound in that family relationship. And even though they might be an unprofitable servant, that they would be faithful to the family. They'd be faithful to the community. And we see that going on here in verse 24. It is God's grace. And there are covenantal expectations that when you receive grace, there is an obligation or expectation that we share that grace with others and back up to God, that we stay connected to him. It's powerful. Now let's, let's dig it even deeper into this doctrine, verse 25, whom God sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Notice the precursor to that was redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So God set forth Christ to be a propitiation or a mercy seat. He's this, uh, this, the atonement 
of Jesus Christ is prepared as a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice of animals or even of man. It's a sacrifice of a God that is going to be this propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance or the tolerance of God. He's willing to actually forgive us and not hold us hostage to our past. Verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Again, we keep coming back to this again and again. The justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And then Paul asks another series of beautifully placed questions. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. We can't boast. We can't come up to those pearly gates and say, see, look how good I was. All we can do is come up to those pearly gates and fall at the feet of the Savior and say, O Lord my God, turn me not away. Please have mercy on me and shine forth thy grace and thy goodness in my behalf, because I don't deserve heaven. I didn't earn heaven, but I've trusted in thee. And all of these things that you laid out on the table, because some of you are probably sitting here thinking, so if what you're teaching is true, then why should I get baptized? Why should I serve a mission? Why should I fulfill callings? Why should I pay tithing and make offerings? Why should I do service projects? What do all of those things do if they don't save me? Because they clearly don't save you, and the reality is, is those are gifts of Christ's grace given to us as opportunities to connect more fully with him in the covenant. Every single element that you could put out on the table are potential connecting points with Christ. So I go to church not to save myself, I go to church to connect with Christ. Who saves you. Who saves me. To stay in that saved relationship. I don't open my scriptures and study them because I think somehow that's going to earn me uh, upgrade points in heaven. I open my scriptures and I study them deeply because I hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to come to know the Savior Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father better than I have before so that I can better understand the terms of the law in their context, this contractual covenantal opportunity of their grace, the, the grace being, are you kidding me? An infinite God who holds worlds without number in his hands actually cares about me and you, and he actually wants to bless us and give us things and help us grow and walk with us through our imperfection and our weakness? That is grace in, in huge astronomical uh, proportions that he's willing to let me walk with him. He's willing to come down and walk with me through this process, and so it's, it's a, a powerful concept to say, where is boasting then? It's not in me, but as Ammon says in the Book of Mormon, I will boast in my God. That's the, I can't boast of myself, but I will boast in him and in his perfection and in his grace and glory and power and mercy and on and on and on. So now we come to verse 28, which for Martin Luther 
and those early reformers in the, in the early 1500s at this time, this becomes the pivot point that would set the stage for the Reformation, which then sets the stage for the Restoration. Without the Reformation, some of you might be wondering, why are we talking so much about Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation? The reality is, is without that, you wouldn't have had the possibility for the Restoration if, if there was no Reformation. And Joseph Smith said some pretty powerful things about those early reformers, about how they were divinely inspired to do what they did and to set the stage. Verse 28 happens to be the verse that Martin Luther came to after all of these verses that we've read in, the, in chapter 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3. It's this verse where he pulls out a pencil and writes into his German Bible a word. He added to the word in the Bible, which was seen as a heresy uh, by many in his day, and here's what he did with verse 28. It says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, and he wrote the German word allein, or alone. Reading that again, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone. According to Luther according to Martin Luther, without the deeds of the law. You're justified by faith alone. Now, many of you are probably thinking, well, it kind of rings true, but maybe he's taken it too far. I need to just tell you that Joseph Smith, when he came to verse 28, he changed it as well, and he added one word to verse 28, and the word that he added, even though it's not in your footnote here, uh, if, you, if you look at the inspired version and go to Romans 3 verse 28, you'll see that Joseph added one word, and the word was alone. He just put it two words earlier, but it doesn't uh, fundamentally change the meaning. So, the, the Joseph Smith translation would read, therefore we conclude that a man is justified alone by faith without the deeds of the law which is everything we've been talking about, which ties back into what he said in verse 24, that we're justified only by his grace. So, this is good doctrine to realize that I don't have to be filled with this spiritual perfectionist mentality. I can move forward relying more wholly on the Savior, Jesus Christ. So, tied in here, I want to share two brief quotes from C.S. Lewis that I think are very, very relevant to this discussion. Number one, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Oh, there's a huge difference between those two things. And then a second quote, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but you're trying in a new way, a less worried way. You're not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. It's, it's such a, a shift of our paradigm 
to stop trying to save ourselves, but at the same time, not saying, okay, well now I don't need to do anything because Christ is so powerful, I'll just believe in him and I'll let him do all the, all the work. Notice he goes on to say in verse 31, do we then make void the law through our faith? God forbid. We establish the law. We establish that covenant connection that Taylor was talking about earlier. We don't say, oh, I don't need to worry about any of the laws because I have faith in God and he's going to do everything, so I'm just going to be along for the ride at this point. And remember the word law, you can insert covenantal instruction. So if we read, reread verse 31, do we then make void the covenantal instructions we received from God because we've exercised faith? No. In fact, what we do is our faith establishes or reconfirms the covenantal instructions we have received from God. It's powerful. Now, he takes us in chapter 4 into the example of Abraham and what Abraham did and the acts of faith that he accomplished and what did that do for him. Oh, and by the way, Abraham didn't have the law of Moses. He didn't have the law that the recipients of this letter would have understood. He had the law of the gospel, according to Joseph Smith, and if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. And it's that concept of Abraham did everything he did as a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, he's doing everything to connect himself with God, which means he had incredible faith, but he also did the very things that God asked him to do, and at least one of the things was incredibly painful to consider, but he was even willing to do that in faith, to show his covenantal loyalty to the law that God had given him. So this ties into where Paul then says, for what saith the scripture, this is verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What did Abraham believe? God had offered Abraham these promises. Now, we talked in the last, in the Old Testament year that those Abrahamic promises were kind of core to God offering grace and salvation to Abraham. Abraham didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. And Abraham trusted or believed that God would be faithful to God's promises to Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants, which include you. And that faithfulness to God, that loyalty to God, so when you see the word believe, you can also see words like loyalty and faithfulness or covenantal trustworthiness, and it was counted unto Abraham as covenantal loyalty, that Abraham's willingness to stay aligned to God in covenantal relationship, God received that as Abraham is indeed in this covenantal relationship. I've offered him this grace, all these free gifts, and Abraham has decided to receive them by staying in relationship with me. That's the subtext of what's going on here in verse 3 and of much of what Paul is preaching. So I hope as we've been talking here that you guys can feel that God is just so, so deeply enmeshed in this love that he's sharing. He wants us to understand the covenantal instructions but not get tripped up that the covenants themselves will save us. They simply are invitation and touch points to stay connected to God. 
So we jump over to verse 16, and let's pull all of this together in what I believe is the most profound and simple connecting statement between faith, grace, and works of any that I've ever read anywhere, and it comes in, sec- in verse 16 in the Joseph Smith translation footnote. This is as good as it gets, in my opinion. Therefore, ye are justified of faith and works through grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to them only who are of the law, but to them also who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He just combined faith and works through grace in this uh, simple, profound way that with that understanding, the rest of this uh, epistle and the epistle to the Galatians and others is going to make a whole lot more sense. That faith and works are not in competition. They are not enemies. It's not a fool's choice. It's not a false dichotomy that you have to pick your side and then fight with the other side that you're right and they're wrong. It's like taking money and saying, like, take a coin and you only like one side of the coin, but you're going to get rid of the other side. You have to throw it all out. It's like they come together and they work together. You cannot have one without the other. Beautiful. So, and and we'll be talking about this repeatedly, this concept, faith, grace, and works. Uh, Look down at verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. He's speaking here of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 5. This, he believed in hope, but it's against hope that he believed because he's so old, and God is giving all of these grace-filled promises, and he's like, I just, I have no clue how that can be. Brothers and sisters, are you seeing how Paul is using that example of Abraham and Sarah and this incredible promise given to him, given to them, and they're saying, I, I have no idea how this is going to come to pass how that is a simple placeholder or object lesson for you and me. How in the world is God going to give us all these amazing things that, quite frankly, we don't deserve? We didn't earn them. We are unprofitable servants. And he's saying, can you just hold on to that hope that God actually loves you even though you feel unlovable much of the time? Can you actually hope for a better world even though you know you don't deserve it, but trust in Christ, have faith in his goodness, in his mercy, and in his grace, that he is abundant in his chesed from the Old Testament, this this outpouring of his, his covenantal kindness to us, which now brings us down to verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. That's an important aspect, that we don't glory in ourselves. We're not glorying in our own perfection because we don't have perfection. We glory in Christ's, which now brings us over to chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, our faith, our reliance is on Christ, not on our own works. 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, to a Martin Luther, we have peace. We don't, we don't live in a state of shamefulness and, and self-loathing and beating oneself up. It's peace in Christ. And, By, and that's, I'm sorry for jumping in. That's so liberating. How many of us struggle with the shame of our fallen nature? And what has Jesus taught us? This life was designed for joy. Even in the midst of our fallen nature, I think Luther started to experience this. He's like, wait, Jesus has offered salvation. I can find joy in that now in the face of the reality that I am not yet like him. So we can recognize we're not like him and yet find joy that we will become like him as we stay faithfully connected to him. Which brings us to verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Access to all of that is through our faith in Christ. Verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Hmm, how many of you woke up this morning and thought, wow, I am so grateful for all the tribulations in my life. I glory in them. It's not a normal human response. It's definitely not in the vernacular of the natural man or the natural woman. Uh, they're, he's saying, we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. You'll notice there's a, there's a decision point here. You've got tribulation, and Paul just walked you through what it looks like when you choose to take the high road, when tribulation worketh patience inside of us. Well, brothers and sisters, there's, there's always a choice, and another individual could go through the exact same tribulation, the exact same scenario, and choose to take the low road, which would lead to impatience. So you could work through that list in verse 3, 4, and 5. He's given you the positive angle, but there's also the negative, downward sloping angle that is an option for everybody to choose. Nobody's going to be forced to walk that high road. The invitation to me as I study this scripture is instead of getting upset at heaven, shaking my fist, at the Lord when things go wrong, it's the invitation to say, whoa, let this tribulation work patience in your soul rather than getting filled with anxiety and frustration and anger and impatience, which would lead me down that way. And I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that this is the path that Christ marked for us through his entire life. Nobody experienced more tribulation than him, and nobody had more patience, experience, hope, or was less ashamed than him. And so we're choosing to become more like him when we choose this, this high road path. Um, and then he gives this incredible comparison. He says, verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. 
It's a pretty hard scenario to say, would you die for him? And he's a really righteous man. He's saying, scarcely would that happen. Well, what's the contrast? Yet peradventure, peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're, we're sinners. We're not even righteous. We're not, we're not wonderful. It is going to be a terrible return on investment for him as far as our perspective is concerned, and he was still willing to lay down his life for us, which now brings us to verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So instead of looking at heaven as, why are you doing this to me? Perhaps the question could be, why are you doing this for me? I don't deserve it. I am not worthy of this grace. I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of your goodness, but you're doing it anyway. Why? What do you see in me that I don't see in myself? I love this, verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's all of these analogies between his death and his resurrection and our spiritual death and newness of life and rebirth, he being the father of our spiritual rebirth. It's just beautifully contained in all of these, these concepts here. Which brings us now to verse 11 which you may want to mark because verse 11 is very unique in the New Testament for one really important reason. See if you can figure out what that reason is as I read it first. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Some of you maybe picked up on this but it's the only time in the entire New Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament, that you're going to find the word atonement. Now, that word appears 55 times in the, the Book of Mormon. It appears 11 times in the Doctrine and Covenants, three times in the Pearl of Great Price, and in our church, in general conference, in the way we talk and teach and, and discuss things, the word atonement is a big deal, but it only appeared once here. Most believe that this word was uh, coined by William Tyndale and the King James translators in 1611, it's a nod to him to translate katalage, that Greek word, into atonement here, whereas in most other places in the New Testament it's translated as reconciliation or to be reconciled. But are you noticing the significance of the word itself, atonement? You've, you've probably all seen this before, but it's worth reviewing because it's such an important concept. This idea that William Tyndale comes to this Greek word, katalage, and instead of saying, yeah, this is a reconciliation, it's the idea that Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, they were walking and talking with God. They were, you could say, at one with him. And then they fell, they're no longer at one with him. And then what happens is if you take a word in English and put the suffix ment on the end, it becomes the process or product of that word. So if you think of judgment, 
Well, judgment is the process of judging, and it's also a product of having judged. Um, advertisement. It's an advertisement is the process of advertising or the product of advertising. You take the word sacrament. It's the process or product whereby we become more sacred, sanctified, and holy. And now you take William Tyndale making up this word. It's the at one meant, the process or product whereby we can once again become one with God and by extension one with each other. So it's uh, this, this beautiful word that only appears one time right here in Romans 5 verse 11. So Paul now takes us into this beautiful comparison between Adam and Christ. So you're going to see the struggles that are introduced into, into humanity because of the fall and the solution that comes only in and through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Notice the italics there, the free gift. Again, the King James translators are trying to help us understand the essence of the verse, even though the phrase free gift does not show up in the original Greek text. That's a great catch. So, notice if we use the King James translators added words there, you get this free gift. Well, what did the free gift do? It overcame our free fall. We're, we're struggling. Mm -hmm. You'll notice what was inherited was death and what Christ now offers is life. What we have staring us in the face is condemnation because we've fallen short, and what Christ offers us is justification and ultimately sanctification through his grace. Just imagine being an ancient Roman Christian, whether from a Gentile or a Jewish background, how massively thrilling this message would be. Like, we, many of us have grown up with these Christian ideas that we receive from Paul. But if you were a first-time hearer of this, imagine like how revelatory and mind-expanding and soul-enlarging it would be to hear that, wow, this is the God we worship. Which culminates in verse 19, right? For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. He's, he's playing this, this contrast and it's beautiful. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Your badness, my badness, our imperfection can't even come close to comparing with Christ's goodness and perfection. Our ability to do wrong is not in the same league with Christ's ability and perfect fulfillment of doing good and overcoming all that is bad. Verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, a, another reminder here, when Paul's writing his letter to the, to the Roman saints here, he's not putting them in chapters, 
and verses. These words are a letter. It's one continuous flow. So the breakup that we have of these chapters, that is a much later addition of, of trying to organize them and make them easier to study and, and, and refer to them. But you jump straight from verse 21 to chapter 6, verse 1, without any break in his original letter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we say, well, hallelujah, I have a Savior who's willing to save me by his grace, so hey, I can eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die and it will be well with me, and if it so be that I'm guilty, God will beat me with a few stripes, but in the end, I'll be saved because of God's grace. And Paul's bringing that up with these Roman saints, saying, you live in a culture that is not faith-friendly. You live in a culture that is not uh, covenantally uh, loyal, friendly, and encouraging. So he's, he's saying, so can we just go and sin so that we can get more of God's grace? And his answer, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And this is an important one because sometimes you hear people say that the freedom they've received in salvation means that they are permanently saved. Now, we've used this metaphor in the past and it's worthwhile to use it again. God offers us this embrace of salvation. He doesn't force anybody in. He doesn't come grabbing you, right? He invites you into the embrace. You can walk away. You can receive his embrace and receive salvation, but if you persistently and over a long period of time purposely and intentionally leave that embrace, you could find yourself permanently outside of the embrace. Paul is trying to help people accept the joy that we have in our salvation, that our sins are washed clean. But don't prove God's infinite atonement by trying to sin infinitely. So now he, he reveals to us the way that we enter into that covenant with Christ. Verse 3, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that life as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So it's this beautiful symbolism that Paul is teaching. And again, as, as Taylor mentioned, you and I are hearing this through restoration ears and reading it through restoration lenses, and we're like, yeah, baptism, a nice symbol of death, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ in this newness of life. And we're saying, yeah, good, we got that. But I wonder if the Roman saints are sitting here reading this saying, oh, wow, I've never, I've never looked at it that way. That is, what a beautiful metaphor, what a beautiful sign of me giving my life over to the Savior and letting him become the father of my spiritual rebirth that takes place in a font filled with water where it's an outward sign, this covenant that I'm making with him and entering into with him that he's offering me, it's an outward sign of this inward faith and repentance and turning to, to the Savior that I'm now displaying outwardly as I take his hand to begin that journey on the covenant path with him. Jump down to verse 8 now. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Brothers and sisters, this is a permanent condition. Resurrection, he, he didn't resurrect 
to then die again, to separate his spirit from his body again. He would die no more, and he promises that same blessing, that same eternal condition for all of us. Which, by the way, we all know because we have known about Christianity or been Christians for long periods of time. In the ancient Roman world, it was highly unusual to think about living forever, of having your body resurrected. Extremely unusual idea. So imagine the thrill it is for these people to understand. Now, they had already accepted Jesus. They would have understood already the power of resurrection, but to have it reinforced this way would be a thrilling truth and doctrine resonating in the hearts and minds of the people hearing these letters. Which now brings us down to the closing part of chapter 6, where Paul asks another one of these rhetorical questions. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. So, again, we need to be careful not to proof text Paul's writings or, once again, pull isolated verses out of context and elevate them above the rest and ignore everything else that he wrote and say, see, I'm right, my position is, is the only way to look at this because of these verses that say this. When you read all of Paul's letter, you get a, a more complete foundation for our faith in Christ so that our works aren't centered in trying to save ourselves or trying to get glory for ourselves, but that they are our efforts fueled by his grace to help us connect more fully with him. And I love his answer when he asks, should we just keep sinning? And once again, God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. There is an amazing talk, one of the finest talks ever given, in my opinion, on this sense of who are we really and who is God and what I do, what effect does that have on my identity for myself as well as in relation to God. It's a talk I highly recommend that you look up and read called Choices for Eternity, given by President Russell M. Nelson in the summer of 2022 to the young adults of the church, but the principles in there apply to everybody. And Sister Nelson, his wife, gave an amazing talk right before that one as well. That entire uh, fireside in the conference center that day, amazing with this content in this context of what we're trying to understand here of who are we, who is he, and what choices I'm making today, what effect will they have on my real identities, my primary identities, which he gives in that talk as you are a child of God, you're a child of the covenant, and you are a disciple of Christ. Every other identity label that the world or you or anybody places on you is secondary to those three labels. And if you understand that, if, if we understand that, then verse 16 makes a lot more sense. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Let's move down to the end of chapter 6, 22 and 23. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, those are such beautiful verses. He just summarizes it so clearly. And if Paul was trying to do a tweet, he may have tweeted just those two verses. But instead he wrote a very long, powerful letter. We're only almost halfway through this letter trying to convince us that ultimately it is Jesus. God has sent his son Jesus to save us. It's a free gift, and we should freely offer our hearts to receive that free gift. So to conclude, as you contemplate your own life, your own identity, your own covenantal connection with, with God and with Jesus Christ, it's our hope that we rely more fully upon his merits, his mercy, and his grace, and see all of the, these things that, that we are given in the church and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not as means whereby we save ourselves, but as connecting points to link us to and bind us more completely and, and beautifully to the Savior Jesus Christ, so that on that day when we do come to the pearly gates, we won't come with a spirit of, of pride and look at all the good things I've done and look at how I deserve heaven, but rather come in the spirit of, O divine Redeemer, turn me not away. Please have mercy on me and extend thy grace. And that is our prayer for all of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and grace. Thank you.